In South Africa, there's a case that has become famous over the years. Gert Van Ruyen and his accomplice, Joey Harhoff, allegedly abducted several girls and trafficked many others. But what happened to these innocent victims is unknown. Some believe there was a massive cover-up by people with high political standing and power. People who were entrenched in a large pedophile ring. This case is unsolved and going cold. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Thanks for listening and welcome aboard. This morning, my family and I are floating in a marina in beautiful Puerto Rico. We have loved our stay here thanks to several listeners who we have been lucky enough to get to know. Thank you, Tammy, Bruce, April, Bert, and Marianne for hosting us, helping us, and giving us great advice. In 1988, a 14-year-old girl named Tracy Lee Scott Crowsley disappeared. A nationwide search involving the police, private detectives, and a large media campaign were working to find her. Everyone wondered, what could have happened to her? Did she run away? Was she abducted or being held as a sex slave? Her mother, Noreen, was tormented by the loss of her daughter. They lived in a small block of duplexes in Windsor Park. Noreen was reportedly an attractive woman, who was very neat and quite lean, but that wasn't by choice. She had lost nearly 20 pounds in the first six weeks after Tracy disappeared. She said, every time we eat a meal, I wonder if Tracy is eating. In the last quarter of 1988, Noreen is grateful that a Sunday paper called the Sunday Times is reviewing her even though the memories that are being dredged up are painful. She figures there are three million readers. Maybe someone will see her daughter's picture and come forward to offer a clue or provide a piece of a puzzle that she and the police are trying to put together. Tracy is Noreen's youngest child. She has two older brothers, one named Mark, who was 21 at the time, and the other is Sean, who was 23. She would have had a third brother named Hayden, who would have been 18, but he died when he was only four and a half months old. Noreen had lost not just one child, but two in her lifetime. It wasn't surprising that she was questioning the powers that be why a second child would be taken from her. Tracy was a student at Northcliffe High. She lived a life similar to thousands of other teenage girls growing up in the lower middle class families in suburban South Africa in the 1980s. She had been going to dance lessons since she was three. At 14, she loved watching Who's the Boss on TV. She adored Patrick Swayze and thought about becoming a dance teacher a hairdresser, or a stewardess. Her parents had divorced four years earlier. The day she was abducted, she was living with her mom, a cat named Sylvester, and a little Pomeranian named Fifi. At the time of the interview that I read about Tracy's disappearance, Noreen believed her daughter was still alive, but Noreen had subconsciously begun speaking about her in the past tense. She reminisced, saying, Tracy and I were more like friends than mother and daughter. She talked to me about anything. She wasn't willful, wasn't moody, and didn't give me any trouble. The two of them would shop together, drink milkshakes, play putt-putt, and go for picnics just for fun. Tracy had been a talented dancer since the age of three, but she was forced to stop classes when she started having blackouts. The blackouts developed into epileptic seizures because her blood pressure would drop too low. But her years of dancing and her youth left her with a beautiful figure. Her mother said she had a flawless complexion, silky blonde hair, and a manner that was somewhere between coy and naive. Grown men would wolf whistle at her in the street, but Tracy paid them no attention. On the morning Tracy disappeared, she hadn't been feeling well. 
Noreen had taken her to a doctor two days earlier, on a Saturday. She had been diagnosed with a mild lung infection. On Monday, Noreen wanted to take Tracy with her to work, but Tracy said she'd like to just lay in bed and then maybe take a walk to Cresta, which was a nearby shopping center. And then she thought maybe she'd see a movie. Noreen trusted her and let her stay home. When Noreen arrived back at her home at 2.40 on Monday, August 1st, she knew right away that something was wrong. Tracy didn't run down the stairs to greet her like she normally would. When she went inside, she saw an open biology book laying next to the table. There was a package of pantyhose, pencils, a half-eaten packet of whispers, and the TV was on, but Tracy was gone. This wasn't like Tracy at all. She would always leave a note or she'd call. So where was she? She called the police to let them know that Tracy was gone and the investigation began there. Police began interviews and found out that Tracy was last seen getting into a Volkswagen Beetle outside a shopping center in Johannesburg. Tracy was never found. And unfortunately, she was the first of several young girls who went missing in 1988 and 1989. On December 22, 1988, a 12-year-old named Fiona Harvey of Peter Meritsburg disappeared. She had been sent on an errand to pick up some milk in the suburbs of Clarendon. A white Ford Bantam pickup truck was seen in the area of her abduction. On it was a logo for Van Ruyen Construction Business, but no one had seen her abduction. In June 1989, a 12-year-old named Joan Horn of Pretoria disappeared. She was walking home from a local shop with friends. A white pickup truck was parked on the side of the road when a woman called to her and offered her money in exchange for getting in the vehicle and giving her directions to a nearby shopping center. She agreed and told her friends to let her sister know what she was doing, and then she was never seen again. One month later, 16-year-old Janet Delport of Durban disappeared after being abducted in a shopping mall by a blonde woman. She was found later wandering around distressed and disoriented, but unharmed. On September 22, 1989, an 11-year-old named Odette Butcher was with her friend 12-year-old Anne-Marie Weaponar. They were both from Kempton Park, and they were taken together. The two were walking to Odette's house to go swimming when they disappeared. One week later, Anne-Marie's mother received a letter from her daughter claiming that she and Odette had run away to Durban with some boys. Odette's letter home arrived a week after Anne-Marie's, even though they had been posted on the same day, which was September 23rd, the day after they disappeared. It was suspected that the letter was written under duress. On November 3rd, 1989, Yolanda Wessels disappeared. She was only 13 years old. Remember her name, because we'll talk more about her later. Then, on January 11th, 1990, 16-year-old Joan Boysen was abducted in Church Square, Pretoria. She was petite and often mistaken for younger than her age. She was taken to a home in Capitol Park, where she was handcuffed, drugged, and sexually assaulted before being locked in a closet. The following all happened in less than three hours. Joan said she had missed her usual bus to school that morning, when a blonde woman approached her on Church Square. She was waiting for the next available bus to take to school. Joan said she knew she shouldn't speak to strangers, especially strange men, but she had never been warned not to speak to friendly old ladies. The woman who abducted her had been friendly and kind, 
and Joan didn't suspect a thing. The woman was named Joey Harhoff, and she'd been wearing a blonde wig that day as she approached Joan at the bus stop and offered her a job. Joan told Joey Harhoff that she was still in school, so she didn't, couldn't work. Harhoff asked her if she could pass the information on to her friends. She then asked Joan where she was going, and Joan openly told her she was heading to school. Harhoff said she was going in that direction and offered Joan a lift, which she accepted. On the way to school, Harhoff told Joan she needed to stop by her home to pick something up. Once there, Harhoff invited her inside. It appeared as though no one was there. Harhoff said they'd have to wait a minute, and she offered Joan a cool drink. Harhoff kept talking, telling Joan that she worked at a nursery. Then she began leading Joan through the house. They passed a bedroom, and inside it was a man she later found out was named Gert Van Ruyen. The man came up to her, slapped her in the face, and knocked her to the floor. When she looked up, she was staring into a revolver. Harhoff gave her a handful of pills, and Van Ruyen forced her to take them at gunpoint. Joan said when she looked at him, all she saw was evil. He had beady eyes, and all she could think was that this man was a villain. He then hurt her and told her that they would demand a ransom for her so she couldn't leave. Then they locked her in a closet. At this point, Joan said she said a quick prayer and looked around to see if she could figure a way to get out. She said there was a polystyrene cooler box in the closet, and she used the lid to open the door. She said she pushed the lid through the crack in the doors and used the lid to lift what I assume was a hook and eye latch. Joan said at the time she was a big fan of the TV show MacGyver. That was a great show, one of my favorites growing up. Joan made her way to the living room and looked outside. She saw Harhoff working in her garden, but there was no sign of Van Ruyen. She found a phone and dazedly called her cousin, telling her what happened and where the house was. She then ran outside as fast as she could. There was a man driving down the street. She waved him down and told him that she'd been kidnapped. Thank goodness he believed her and didn't think she was crazy. The fact that she was barefoot and terrified certainly added credence to the situation. She got into his car and the man drove away. Joan gave him her parents' address and then passed out in the car from the drugs she had been given. The stranger took her home. The police were called, and later that evening, after interviewing her, the police placed Van Ruyen's home under surveillance. And it's a good thing they did, because it turns out that Van Ruyen and Harhoff were terrible, terrible people. They would be tied to these six missing girls. Van Ruyen was born in South Africa. He was described as a flamboyant and sexual braggart by some people, and a God-fearing man who claimed to be a preacher by others. He would brag to guests at his home about his sexual exploits with young women and girls, some as young as five years old. Before being linked to these six girls' disappearances, he was convicted of several offenses, including molestation. He was sentenced to correctional training in 1954 for stealing a car. Then he was back in reform school a year later for stealing guns and a rifle. And at age 22, he was in jail for stealing car parts and clothing. His prison record was clean for a while, at least until 1979, when in his early 40s he was jailed for kidnapping and sexually molesting two young girls. He had picked up a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, who will remain unnamed because they were underage at the time. 
He took them to the Heartbeat Sport Dam, where he physically and sexually assaulted them. He brutally beat them, but he let them go the following day, and this resulted in his arrest. He was sentenced to six years for hurting these girls. He only ended up serving three. Four years after his sentencing, he and his wife, Alita, got a divorce. I'm hoping the divorce only took this long because he was in jail for three of those years. Van Ruyen was a father to six children and helped operate a construction business with his brothers. Authorities later said the business appeared to be in trouble, but Van Ruyen always seemed to be flush with cash. Domestic workers and a handyman at his home claimed he didn't often pay them for their services. One domestic worker said Van Ruyen threatened to withhold her pay unless she brought him young girls from the township. Neighbors complained Van Ruyen lived in a virtual fortress. No one could get in there uninvited. Young girls in the area said that Van Ruyen leered, whistled at them, and told them that they were sexy. He was always hanging over his gate, willing to chat with girls who went by. Five years after his divorce, he started dating his accomplice, Joey Harhoff. Harhoff was a light brown-haired and fair-skinned woman. Her friends described her as very attractive and said she could have had any man she wanted. Many people thought it was strange for her to choose a short, balding, and pot-bellied older man. It was said that she was a hard-working woman who raised her children alone after her husband's death in the mid-80s. She worked as an accounts clerk and later as a debtor's clerk. She seemed from the outside looking in to be fairly normal, but all of that changed after meeting Van Ruyen. One of her sons said that after she began dating him, her personality changed drastically. When she met him, she became submissive, which wasn't her nature. She was very much in love with him. Harhoff's daughter, Amor, later wrote a book in which she stated that Joey Harhoff physically, verbally, and emotionally battered her only daughter, and then turned a blind eye when Amor's own father sexually abused her. Joey Harhoff quickly became Van Ruyen's willing accomplice. She would lure and gather girls for him. It was also rumored that she would call children's homes in the area, saying that the couple would like to invite young girls over for holidays or for the weekends. They even applied to foster children, but the application was turned down, most likely because Van Ruyen was a pedophile. Thank goodness for that, and great job to whoever reviewed their application. On the day that Joan Boysen had been kidnapped and escaped, Harhoff had been working in the garden, oblivious to the escapee. When she realized that Joan was gone, she started to panic. At 11 a.m. that morning, she called her sister to tell her that she had done something bad, something really, really bad, and that she couldn't reach Van Ruyen. She eventually admits to her sister that she had kidnapped a girl and that the girl had escaped. Harhoff's sister immediately asked if the two of them had anything to do with her own daughter Yolanda's disappearance. Yes, Yolanda Wessel, the Yolanda who had gone missing earlier that year, the one I told you to remember. She was Joey Harhoff's niece. When Harhoff was asked this question, she quickly changed the subject. Soon after this, Van Ruyen arrives home, and it's during the next few hours and days that several things happen. Some evidence was destroyed by the pedophiles. They leave their home and they begin to try to cover up their crimes. The police start contacting their extended family, trying to find out where they are. It's alleged that just a couple days later, Van Ruyen and Harhoff are pulled over by traffic police 
and are issued a speeding ticket. The officer who pulled them over reported that he saw two young girls in the back of a pickup truck under a blanket, but there's no more information on this, and the couple weren't arrested at the time. But some believe the girls could have been Odette and Anne-Marie, who had disappeared three months earlier. Four days after Joan had escaped from Van Ruyen's home, officers Don Chandler and Rudy Van Alstein were assigned to stake out the home. They observed that Van Ruyen's pickup truck drove past the house. Van Ruyen must have seen them, too, because a chase ensued. Officer Don Chandler was able to shoot out both back tires on Van Ruyen's truck. They saw that Harhoff had her hands up, as if she was giving up, but suddenly they hear a gunshot, and Harhoff's head drops out of view. Officer Chandler gets out of the vehicle and runs towards the pickup truck. He sees that Van Ruyen's back is turned toward him. He gets to Van Ruyen's window, and he attempts to open the door, but it's locked. It is then that Gert Van Ruyen turns around, looks Officer Chandler in the eye, and pulls the trigger on himself, committing suicide. Later, the officers find out that Van Ruyen and Harhoff had made a suicide pact. In fact, they had even written suicide notes and wills a few days earlier. Their final selfish act is why 30 years later, the location of these girls or their remains are still unknown. All the girls' disappearances I mentioned earlier were linked by witness statements or forensic evidence to Van Ruyen and Harhoff following their deaths. For example, Odette Butcher's home address phone number, and identity badges, as well as Anne-Marie's address and house keys, were found in Van Ruyen's home. They also found the envelopes and paper the girls had been forced to use to write the notes to their parents. The other girls were either seen with Van Ruyen's pickup truck, his work van, or with Harhoff or her vehicle. There are several theories about Yolanda's disappearance, but the obvious link was that she was related to Harhoff. One of Van Ruyen's sons even linked her disappearance to his father, but he later retracted his testimony. It's also noted that Yolanda's school identification badge was found in Van Ruyen's desk. There have been rumors that Yolanda kept a diary and that the police kept it as evidence because Yolanda had seen or known something she wasn't supposed to, and her Aunt Joey found out. A handwritten note in child's handprinting was found in a local library. On it were the words, I am Anne-Marie. My friend and I are with our kidnappers. It listed an address and went on to say, My friend has tried to phone, but was cut off. The librarian who found it was interviewed and said a little girl had come into the library shortly before the note was discovered. This girl was 12, approximately, and had short black hair and appeared very scared. The librarian said, I can see her sitting there, and I wondered at the time why she looked so scared. Her parents said that the handwriting was definitely Anne Marie's, and a police handwriting expert confirmed it. Police investigated the address given and Anne Marie's note, but it went nowhere, and it remains the only proof that she and Odette were possibly still alive months after the couple died. This led to theories that a pedophile ring was operating in the area. A few years later, the youngest of Gert Van Ruyen's sons, Philip Van Ruyen, who was more commonly called Flippy, was charged with the brutal murder of a Zimbabwean teenager. Did I get that right? Zimbabwean? Let me know. I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and Flippy isn't the only rotten apple in that family. 
He claimed that the girl's fate was part of an international child pornography ring that included several high-ranking members of government. He also claimed that satanic rituals were performed on the girls by his father and some of his pastoral friends. When he was arrested for murdering the 15-year-old, he admitted to murdering her accidentally but aggressively while on military duty. He beat her with his army rifle and strangled her. A farm laborer found her mutilated body in a shallow grave on the banks of the Limpopo River. Her private parts had been removed, and her womb was cut out. Flippy claimed that her hysterectomy and corpse mutilation was forced on him by someone in the international child pornography and pedophile ring that he later claimed his father had been involved in. Flippy Van Ruyen's death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment in May of 1993. In 1997, he told the court that his father had dissolved the girls' bodies in acid, which Flippy had gotten from a steelmaker where he worked. He said this was done after they had been sacrificed in the satanic ritual. Then he went on to tell a local newspaper that three cabinet ministers were involved in the same pedophile ring that his father was a part of. Flippy said his father had confessed to him that he and Joey had kidnapped more than 40 young girls. They sold some of them for money, and a top political officer smuggled the girls out of the country. Flippy was given a lie detector test, which he failed. As a true crime fan, you probably know that lie detector tests don't work, so never agreed to do one. Flippy also claimed that some of the girls were murdered and buried in sand dunes near Umdalati, where his father and Harhoff vacationed. Others were taken to the Middle East and sold into slavery. He also believed that his father and Harhoff were murdered by police under the orders of these high-ranking political officers. He said there's no way that his father would have killed himself because he loved himself too much. Flippy wasn't the only Van Ruyen to believe their father had been killed. His daughter claimed that she had never been touched by her father, and she swore on her life that her father didn't kill himself. She said, I don't know if he was involved in the murder of the girls. None of us really knows. My father was a good man who loves children. There was no abuse, and we knew nothing about satanic rituals in this house. He was a deeply religious man and brought us up to be good Christians. Another brother had conflicting descriptions of his father. He said, I had very little contact with Van Ruyen before his death because he was so domineering, but I don't know anything about any sexual abuse. In 2001, Flippy was sentenced to six more years in prison for lying to the court. Strangely, in 2007, reports came out that several sets of bones were found in an Umdalati lot. This is very near, less than 500 meters, from the vacation home that Van Ruyen and Harhoff used. Bones were discovered under a beach road that had been washed out during record high seas that pounded the coast. These bones seemed to add a ring of truth to Flippy's statement that the girls were murdered and buried there. It was later found through DNA testing that these bones didn't belong to any of the missing girls. That doesn't mean that the Van Ruyens weren't involved in the placement of those bones, though. Later that same year, in November of 2007, bones were discovered in a property adjacent to the Van Ruyens' house in Pretoria. Ground was being dug up to remove an old swimming pool. According to the report, the pool was built during a time Van Ruyen was involved in a construction company that installed swimming pools. The skeleton was found with a green dress and black knitted tights. Police said they believe the bones belonged to an adult, but a forensic scientist named David Klatsop disagreed. 
He said they could be that of a young teenager. He also said that some of the bones had what appeared to be saw marks on them, and obviously he questioned why someone would legitimately be buried under a pool. In 1996, the bank donated Van Ruyen's former home to the police to allow the girl's disappearance to be investigated further. The police systematically demolished the house in search of new forensic evidence that might provide clues to the girl's fate. The roof was removed and vacuumed for traces of human hair and nails. The walls were demolished. The kitchen and main bedroom were scanned with sonar equipment to look for cavities. The soil in the yard was sifted, and some bones were found, but forensic pathologists identified these as non-human. Officer Don Chandler, who saw Van Ruyen shoot Harhoff and then shoot himself, is now retired. He believes not all aspects of the investigation were followed up on. He also revealed that he and others believe there were a lot more girls of mixed races who were kidnapped. All six victims I shared with you were white. I mention their skin color only because when this happened, apartheid was going strong in South Africa. There was a system of institutionalized racial segregation. The nation's white population ruled, followed by Asian and Indian, and then coloreds, who are multiracial and sometimes called brown, and then black Africans. The social effects and economic legacy of apartheid continues today. This means that the disappearances of black or brown girls wasn't seen as important as those of the white girls. They likely went missing with little to no help from police. Some may have even been unreported. Some believe Gert Van Ruyen took advantage of this. Officer Don Chandler said there were suspicions at the time that Van Ruyen's gardener and domestic worker were helping kidnap these girls. Chandler said he had others pinned down, more accomplices and friends of Van Ruyen and Harhoff, but none were questioned. He said the theory that girls may have been trafficked to nearby countries was never taken seriously by investigators. Chandler still hasn't given up on the case, but the renewed interest in this case has made him a target. His home was burglarized, and a computer and two cell phones containing lots of information about the case were stolen. On the other hand, there are some people who believe that Officer Don Chandler was willingly a part of the cover-up to protect the pedophiles in the pedophile ring that held the high political power. Thirty years later, the families of these girls still want answers. These girls, if they live, would be in their 40s now. As the decades pass, the chances of locating the girls grow slimmer, but some believe there's still hope and that the case can still be solved. The families have been inundated with false hopes and false leads. There are people who are trying to take advantage of them or the situation for their own benefit. One of these was a woman who called herself Lee Sloan. She came out publicly in 2019, claiming to have been abducted in the late 80s by Van Ruyen. Her coming forward coincided with the investigation into Van Ruyen's kidnappings gaining interest by former investigators and concerned members of the public. She claimed that she was 41 years old and had recounted extreme sexual abuse by Van Ruyen and Harhoff. Although she did look a lot like Fiona Harvey, who she claimed to be, Fiona's family said immediately she was definitely not Fiona. The woman claimed she was and told police that she would even do a DNA test. Eventually, a test was done, and it revealed that the woman was not Fiona. Instead, it was determined that her real name was Jackie Sloan and that she was born in 1983. 
She grew up in Durban and has five siblings, from whom she is now estranged. Her brother said she has a history of preying on people's sympathy for financial gain. He said he was on Facebook when he saw an article with Jackie's picture in it. He said when he read it, he wasn't surprised. She did this all the time. She uses other people and gains their sympathy. He said she's been off the rail since their parents died when she was younger, and when she gets caught out by people, she just disappears. He hadn't spoken to his sister in more than 15 years. In 2016, the investigation continues. A private investigator named Chris Breit is looking for a woman who did an interview in 2016. Unfortunately, the woman's contact details were lost when the journalist's computer crashed. This woman claimed to have escaped the clutches of Gert Van Ruyen. She also claims that he had assistance from people other than Joey Harhoff. In 2016, at the time of the interview, she lived in England, but at the time of this incident, she lived in Red Hill, Durban North. She said she tried to contact the South African police two years ago to tell them what she knew, but she received no response. She'd almost given up telling her story when she saw a similar story published online. She said it seems the police are not interested in what appears to be a closed case, and a cold one at that. This is her story. One note first. The journalist who wrote her account changed the name of the man in the story. It was 1976. I was 12 years old and living in Durban North. I went to play at a friend's house. There was a chap who worked with my friend's father who had a plumbing business at the time. I was about to walk home, and Tim said that he would give me a lift. I accepted because he worked with someone I knew, and I'd seen him on several occasions. I was slightly apprehensive, as my friend, who was 12, had said he kissed her once, and I knew that was wrong, but he was quite insistent. Once I was in his car, he set off in a direction opposite to my home. I told him my mom was waiting for me, but he replied that he had to pop home quickly, and then he would take me home. When this trip was about ten minutes in, I asked him, please do let me out, but he reached across my lap and held me in my seat until he reached his destination near North Coast Road. He grabbed my wrist and pulled me out the driver's side, so I had no choice but to run with him. He was joking and being friendly at the same time. When we walked in the front door, there was an older couple sitting in the lounge. Tim looked surprised to see them, and there were suitcases in the lounge, too. They spoke Afrikaans to each other, not knowing that I could speak it fluently. I remember the older man had asked him where he was going to put me, and who knew I was there. Tim then led me to a room upstairs. I was panicking, but knew that keeping calm was going to save me. He returned a minute later to say that the room was busy and I had to stay there for a while before we could be alone. I don't know what came over me. I was so innocent and terrified, but I said to him that perhaps we could go to the Crown Hotel for a drink, and then we could be alone without anyone hanging around. The Crown Hotel was in Red Hill, near to where I lived, and it was the only way I could give myself time to think and get closer to home. I also knew that the Red Hill police station was just across the road from the hotel. He looked amazed, and then he said yes. He took me to the car through the driver's side, as before. He strapped me in, but this time he drove without his arm across me, just his hand rested on my leg. I smiled at him. I remember that clearly. I was playing along, and it felt like it was working. How did I come up with this plan? I can honestly say that God was looking after me. Inside my heart was pumping. 
I just wanted my mom. At the Crown Hotel, we sat down at outside tables. He looked like he wanted to go inside straight away. I told him that I was nervous, and if he could order us both a drink, it would make me less so. Being underage, they wouldn't serve me, so he had to go in and order from the bar. He did so, obviously thinking that he had my full compliance. The minute he disappeared through the hotel doors, I ran faster than I'd ever run towards the police station. To my horror, a van pulled up with my friend's father inside. He was fuming and ordered me to get inside. I should have continued on to the police station, but if he had given chase, he would have got me, so I climbed in. I thought it was a case of out of the frying pan into the fire, but he took me straight home. A few months later, I was watching news on TV. A picture of the older man at Tim's house came on the screen. My blood went cold. It was Gert Van Ruyen, and I realized he had hurt and killed girls my age. Everything swirled in my head, and I became very quiet for ages afterwards. I was reluctant to leave the house. I blamed myself for not telling the police what happened right away. Maybe I could have saved at least some of those girls. When the photo of Joey Harhoff was released, I knew without a doubt this was the woman I met in Tim's lounge, even though her hair was a different color then. I knew Tim must have been involved in recruiting victims. I was meant to be one. I'm doing this to say sorry to the victims I could have saved. What I just read to you was from the South Coast Herald in 2016. I'm not sure what to think of this story. The timing doesn't match up. In 1976, when she claimed this happened, Van Ruyen wasn't in the news for murdering girls. That didn't happen until the late 80s. He didn't know Harhoff in the 70s either, but perhaps she got the dates wrong. If any of you wonderful listeners know anything about this case or this woman, please contact the journalist at shona at dbn.caxton.co.va. I'll put the address in the show description. There are so many things going on in this article that my head is spinning. I can 100% understand why cases go cold, especially when it seems like there's just so much to investigate. It would be overwhelming for me to keep all the facts separate from the theories and hearsay. Great job to all the investigators out there who search through piles and piles of paperwork and interviews. Thank you. In researching this case, I found out that a movie was made called I Am All Girls. It's on Netflix and it's based on these victims. It's not a documentary, but there are a lot of similarities between the movie and this case. Thank you all for listening this week. I appreciate each and every one of you. If you have a minute, please rate, review, share with a friend, or support this podcast. Check out the links in the episode description for the opportunity to support the podcast, social media, resources, and links to this case. Thanks again, and as always, I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas.